Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. And today we are excited to have back on the podcast, Pastor the Right Reverend Nicholas Batzig, uh, a good friend of ours whom we love. Uh, we've done conferences together. We've hung out together, um, enjoyed all kinds of, of good gifts together. And uh, anytime, anytime we can get him on the pod, whether it's talking about John Knox or uh, or something like Long Gospel, uh, we love we love to bring him on. If you don't know Nick, uh, Nick is the pastor of I, mean, I messed up the Church Creek Presbyterian. Church Creek right. Press. I always, I, I mean, I, and I even asked him, I go, tell me how again. So I don't mess. I wrote it down. I still wanted to mess it up. Church Creek Presbyterian. He is an associate editor at Legionnaire, our favorite publication uh, that we like to read. And so we want to encourage you guys to, uh, to check him out there. Nick, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me back. So uh, what is it? We're recording on a Wednesday. And so it's midweek. How are you feeling midweek as, as a pastor? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I actually have this weekend off. We're going to um, a family farm, so we're going to go dove hunting on Saturday, and Mm. then I have this Lord's Day off, so it's always nice to get a little break from preaching. Wait, you're going going dove hunting? Yes. Dove hunt. It seems like the most harmless, the most innocent creature, more more gentle and and innocent than a a deer, and you're like, I'm going to kill that dove. How do you go, how do you go like, dove hunting? What do you go, throw out seeds and then hit it with a hammer? Like, how, how do you mean, go? What do you do? Every time I go, I have to block out that the scripture likens the Holy Spirit to a dove, buddy. <laughs> you can go serpent <laughs> hunting, go like snake hunting. Right. That might be a little, right. feel a little bit better. So no, really, right. what do you do when you, when you dove hunt? I, I don't understand how it works. Yeah. So ordinarily you sit out in a field in a blind okay. and you wait for him to fly and use a shotgun. But on opening day, which is what we're going to do, you can just pretty much stand out in a field and just shoot at them because they fly real low. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. My boys love it. Okay, cool. Cool. Now, do you, do you actually do you eat them? Do you? They... Yeah, you, you don't get a lot of meat off each one. I mean, you need you need multiple to get anything substantive, but, but I mean, so you not big birds. Cook them up like a little like a little appetizer kind of a thing. Yeah, fry them up, little nugget. All right, all right, cool, man. Cool. And where are you going to do that? What, 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 you going out of state? So my wife's dad has a farm in Waynesboro, Georgia, okay. south of Augusta, Georgia. So it's about two and a half hours from Charleston. All right, all right, very cool, man. Very cool. Got the weekend off. Well, yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been off for uh, for four weeks, so I'm eager to get back to it. We miss preaching as preachers, right? I mean, it's like if it's in your bones, right? There's a fire in my bones. If I can't bear it, I can't hold it in any longer, that kind of a thing. I, I love to do it. And so uh, I love to hear preaching very, very much. But if I don't get to do it after a while, boy, it's uh, it feels like I'm aching. I'm aching to, to exercise that gift. Plus, I always benefit so much from my own study and prep personally from it, you know. And so mm-hmm. uh, I'm eager to get back into it. Well, we wanted to have you come on uh, to talk about the law and the gospel. Now, this is uh, law and gospel is something that you hear quite a bit in uh, in Reformed and Lutheran circles. And sometimes there's some divergences there. But um, in the Reformed tradition, Nick, when, when we talk about law and gospel, what essentially is, is at stake there, that phrase law and gospel? What's it referring to and, and how does it sort of separate and parse out? And how do they connect? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the law gospel distinction is clearly taught in the Pauline epistles, especially in Romans and Galatians. I mean, so many of the polemics with which 
the apostles were engaged in the early church were those polemics mm-hmm. regarding the relationship between um, the law of God, the law of Moses, the law of God, and the the apostolic preaching of the gospel. What those things are and how they relate is not always easy. Um, I was reminded as I was looking forward to this show with you of that famous quote by Jonathan Edwards, where he essentially says there is there is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox divines do so much differ mm. as stating the precise agreement and difference between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. And wow. you could just say, you know, the relationship between law and gospel, where where they agree and where they differ, is of the essence of, you know, um, the the biblical teaching, um, the preservation of the gospel, the understanding of justification, sanctification, and and really, and you know this, and your listeners know this, in the Reformation, the distinction between the law and the gospel become one of the main points of contention between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, because Rome very clearly blurred the distinction. Mm-hmm and muddied the distinction. And so the reformers and then the Puritans and the post-Reformation scholastics after them were insistent. I mean, there is probably more written on this subject in the Reformation, post-Reformation era in Protestant theology than almost any subject. So um, it's essential. It's essential to um, the history of the Protestant Reformation. And we don't want to lose that. I mean, yeah. that's always the, the challenge is that we in some way, shape, or form revert back to what we came out of um, right. in the Reformation in this regard. So maybe let's, let's define some terms, right? So we have law and gospel. Now, I know when you're reading your Bible, if, if, if people are familiar with Scripture, they'll pick up on, well, I see law a lot, but it seems to refer to different things in different passages, right? It can refer to the Torah, right? The, the can re- it can refer to the Pentateuch, right? Um, what, uh, so... What are, I mean, we don't have to go through all of the different ways in which laws law is used, or you can if you'd like, um, but what are we talking about when we say there's a law-gospel uh, distinction? What do we mean by law? And, and maybe, maybe it's worth saying there are a couple of ways it's in which it's used. It's up to you how you want to unpack that. Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of categories that are going to be helpful. One is, and especially when you read... Um, Puritans like John Owen, you're going to find different ways in which the the um, comparison and contrast between the law and the gospel are used. Sometimes Owen will speak of the old covenant economy, everything you know from Moses on as the period of the law, right. and then everything from the coming of Christ on as the gospel or the period of the gospel. So sometimes they're dealing with the two redemptive historical administrations of the one covenant of grace, right? Everybody after Adam is only ever saved by Christ, whether under the period of the law or the period of the gospel. The Westminster Standards also use it that way when they talk about the differences between those two uh, redemptive historical economies. But then when the Reformers and the Puritans following a lot of Paul's arguments are contrasting law and gospel, they're speaking about the Mosaic legislation given to Israel at Sinai for a period in redemptive history until the coming of Christ, and those 613 laws that are then divided into those three, that tripartite division, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law, those civil cases, judicial cases with their 
penal sanctions, and then the ceremonial law, which are going to be those things regarding sacrifice and worship and priesthood, all the ceremonial aspects, the blood laws, the cleanliness, uncleanness laws. So, so law can be taken for the totality of the Mosaic legislation given at Sinai. Um, and then sometimes in the New Testament, law is merely speaking about the Ten Commandments. There's different usages, and theologians kind of wrestle with this, and some of our uh, New Covenant theologians and progressive dispensationalists are going to differ with historically Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians right. and others on this. But but everybody is kind of trying to let the exegesis of the use of nomos in the New Testament determine whether we're speaking about ceremonial laws, civil laws, moral laws, or just the Mosaic economy on the whole, as in 2 Corinthians 3, or 4, 3 and 4. Um, by way of contrast, the gospel... Um, as defined in the apostolic letters, is the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the redemption of his people. Mm. And and Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 15. He spells it out in the book of Galatians. Um, and so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about what Christ has done, not what we're doing. And, and that's why there's going to be that distinction between what God required of his people and continues to require in the law and what he provides in Christ. Mm. So the gospel is God's gracious provision of what he does apart from the law. Now, where this gets really challenging, Joe, and you know this, is on that phrase, works of the law, which Roman Catholics reduce down to just ceremonial markers um, N.T. Wright and the New Perspective advocates kind of following Rome before the Reformation have that same argument. But when we read Calvin and Luther, and then we read almost all the English Puritans, they understand works of the law to be anything you're doing right, in accord with God's revelation in his law that in some way factors into how he accepts you. And, and so they're making clear in justification that the law plays absent absolutely no part whatsoever, that your attempts to obey the law do not in any way, in fact, they 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 negate the freeness of justification by faith alone in Christ alone in the gospel. Mm-hmm. So there is that strong distinction there, especially in Romans and Galatians, between law and gospel for justification. Mm-hmm. So in the law and uh, in, in, in essentially in, in all of its uses— whether we're talking about a covenant uh, administration or we're talking about uh, the way that it's used in the New Testament, is it fair to say that the law requires or in the law God demands? Um, and so even today we would say the law still demands uh, of you. The law demands of you. But in the gospel, um, God provides for you. How does that not create confusion, uh, a, a theological, spiritual confusion of faith for people um, when they're seeing like, well, God says, you must be holy as I am holy, right? In First Peter and in Leviticus, God, you must be holy as I am, hum- as I am holy. Um, how does that not create confusion from people who say like, well, I thought I thought I was I was, you know, predestined to be holy, you know, before the foundations of the earth by by God's grace. How, how do how do they how do people avoid confusion there? 
I would say a couple things, and I agree entirely with what you said about the law requires. Let me first say this, that in our Reformed confessions, especially in the Westminster Standards, the Puritans are going to associate the law given to Moses at Sinai with the covenant of works given with Adam. Now, we're not getting into what kind of republication, was it a republication, but just there is an association because they are going to say that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, were written on the heart of Adam at creation and that they are the basis of what God requires of Adam as the federal head of his people in the covenant right. of works. So if Adam had made had cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, made a bat and murdered Eve, that would have been a violation of the sixth commandment, even though God didn't say thou shalt right. not kill. Mm. All those 10 commandments are bound up in the one commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam had carved out an idol out of the wood of the tree and bowed down and worshipped it, he would have been violating the first commandment and the second commandment and all of them. Um, So I think the association between the law written on Adam's heart and the, the requirement of the covenant of works has to be the starting point. God required of Adam our Westminster Confession says, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Perfect obedience, it's got to be without flaw. Personal, every single person is required to obey that descends from Adam, starting with Adam. And perpetual, that never goes away, to your point, that requirement never goes away. So when God gives the law to Israel at Sinai, he's not giving them another way of salvation. He's bringing the legal requirements to bear to show them, and Paul makes this very clear, to make sin exceedingly sinful. The law was added to make the transgression abound, right? So mm-hmm. these things were, were put on top of the promises God gave after the fall. Not By that the way, man would try to. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, 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 the first time I, that, be, maybe the first time it really began to be, to be clear to me in Scripture that this is the Ten Commandments weren't new to Israel. Uh, was you know I, I was as I was reading Exodus, and he gives them the the Sabbath command. They were already doing it, mm-hmm. like they were already keeping the Sabbath. I mean, with the whole manna and everything. Like this is not a. It wasn't strange to them, but I was being taught that no, 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 this is all new. These are these are this was a a, a new way of articulating a way to live for them. And uh, but you know, like you said, I, I that's when I began to see like oh no, 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 this this clearly this and this is before like I had a theological framework for everything. But I was like no, they they, they were con- sin was clear, murder was wrong. Uh, there was a curse for that. It, it hadn't been articulated yet formally, and they were keeping even they were even keeping the Sabbath. So it seemed to me that 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 seemed you could, it seemed to be something that I could see in scripture just by reading it without even having a theological formulation of it established early on in my faith. Yeah, there is a uh Feshgrift that was written for Oh, a, yeah, a, a, a Feshgrift, yeah. Yes, a yes. Feshgrift. Of course, a, uh... of course. For people who might not know what that is, uh <laughs> I'm not saying I don't know what that is, but for people who might not know, would you uh I'm just over here drinking it's, soda it's out a, of a Bucky's cup. I'm that kind of a guy. It, it's a book written in honor of some dude that people revere. Okay. All right. Um with compilation articles, Got compilation it. volume. So there was a book written in honor of O. Palmer Robertson and in the chapter on 
I forget what the title was, but the guy who wrote it was Nick Wilborn in that book. You'll find a footnote where he mentions that I had found a um, an audio by Dr. Robertson in seminary where he goes through the entirety of the Old Testament leading up to the giving of the Mosaic Law to show where all the Ten Commandments are clearly taught. So, nice. you know, the, the murder principle, right, in the Noahic Covenant yeah. is there already. And he goes through all the other ones. So it is helpful for us to note that while there was no formal giving of the law, mm-hmm. that's Paul's point in Romans 5, 12 through 21, the law had not yet been given, death still reigned from Adam to Moses. Right. It doesn't mean there was no law. Yeah. That was still the principle from creation written on the heart of man, Romans 2, mm-hmm. right? That all men have the law written on their heart. I don't think that's a new covenant principle in right. Romans 2, like some guys say. And so rightly so, I think the Westminster divines note throughout that the law continues to require, even though we're not under it as a covenant of works, it continues to require perfect, personal, and perpetual continual obedience. And and we are neither justified nor condemned by it, but that's that legal standard still there. And that's why we emphasize that Christ had to be born under it. It's why we emphasize that Christ had to obey it in its totality. Jesus kept not only the moral laws when he healed the leper, He told him, go show yourself to the priest as a testimony to Moses. So he's even fulfilling the ceremonial laws. Jesus doesn't set any of them aside. He obeys the totality of it. He merits the righteousness, right? Do this and live. There's a legal sense in which do this and live is held out. And then he fulfills all that in himself. He takes the curse of it for us. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 13, cursed is everybody who does not continue in all things in the book of the law. Christ was made a curse for us. And then he writes that law on our hearts. He writes the Ten Commandments on our heart again by the Spirit. And then in the Christian life, and this answers your question in a roundabout way, when we come to the doctrine of sanctification, we do believe that the law is good and holy, that it plays a role in helping to promote that, not apart from the gospel. Right but that it it becomes the sphere of our sanctification. It becomes a prod when we need to be prodded toward holiness. It directs us, it guides us, but we're not justified or condemned by it once we're in Christ. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I think, you know, that uh, I've seen a lot of preachers um, and not just young preachers seem to get really confused on, on what to do as preachers. Because like, well, I don't want, I don't want to confuse people. I I don't you know the law condemns and I don't want to condemn them. Uh, well, when, when frankly, uh, they, they may need to be condemned. You, you don't know who, <laughs> let the law condemn, mm-hmm. right? And let Christ justify. But they, they seem to get confused over this, this area of sanctification. And uh, you remember when Tullian and that whole sort of movement was pushing to, you don't, you don't strive for just, you don't strive for godliness. If, if you try to be godly, you're, you're going to fail. You just got to rest in your justification. And there seemed to be a lot of confusion uh, from, from popular, even like people that were known as Bible preachers who would on the other end of the spectrum, they would only preach the commands. They seem to like really champion like, okay, well uh, we're not going to be like that. We're, we got to motivate people. We got to move people. God calls us to do, to strive, to kill, to, to live. So here are five ways to pray better. Here is a, a strategy for fasting. Here are, are 10 ways to be a better husband or wife, all of which are fine and good, uh, necessary even, but they would never get to the gospel. So I, I found like there's this, 
among a lot of preachers that there's this confusion uh, over how to handle both in in preaching and exhorting people, and they tended to fall one way or the other. They would they would preach the gospel uh, in that you know Christ is your salvation, the law no longer condemns, but there was no exhortation to do, or there was an exhortation to do with with no with no hope or grace in it. So on the one hand. I felt like it was it was likely to encourage a, a sort of a spiritual laziness on the one side, uh, and on the other side, uh, a, a sort of spiritual despair or pride based on how well they felt they were doing with law keeping. You're a preacher, you're a pastor. How do you approach that? How do you approach preaching law and gospel? How do you how do you approach preaching with these principles of law and gospel? The law demands, and yet the God provides in the gospel. Yeah, going back to that original quote by Jonathan Edwards, I mean, there really is no point of divinity at which it's more difficult to um, understand the relationship between the covenant of works, covenant of grace, the law and the gospel. Um, And James Henley Thornwell, the famous American Presbyterian theologian um, of the 19th century, famously said, Christ is crucified between two thieves antinomianism on the one hand and legalism on the other. It's a really great word picture. Christ is crucified between two thieves, antinomianism, anti-namas, no law on the one hand, and legalism on the other. So in preaching, we're always trying to avoid those two errors. And they're really two sides of the same coin. Every Mm -hmm. legalist is antinomian. Every antinomian really is legalist. Functionally, it kind of, if you're evading Christ and you're evading union with Christ, and I would definitely emphasize to your listeners that union with Christ is the key to this, Mm -hmm. that if we hold um, the believer's union with Christ from eternity past chosen in him, to the redemptive historical union we have with Christ, when he died, we died, to the existential or experiential union we have in time when we are savingly united to him. And we realize that that what he does, who he is and what he does, never ceases to be the center of our preaching, that he is the source of holiness, yeah. that he breaks the power of sin, and that that happens in our life by union with him. When we're holding Christ in the center, then we're going to a lot less easily fall into the ditches of antinomianism or legalism because Christ also died for us, not just to justify us, but to sanctify us, right? Calvin yeah. says he doesn't give one without giving the other. Yeah. He, he dies to cleanse us from sin's guilt and power. And so that means that when we are united to Jesus and when we are preaching on anything, that is law or gospel. And I would also say this to your listeners that um, that uh, many Reformed theologians historically have noted that everything in Scripture is either law or gospel in one sense, um, commands or promises, you know, what God requires or what God provides. Uh, John Calhoun, and we were talking about, he spells his name Calhoun, Calhoun wrote a treatise on long gospel. That would be an exceedingly helpful book for your listeners trying to figure out how to preach these things. And and what he and the Marrow men, so Thomas Boston, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, those guys that are holding the line on on a biblical relationship between long gospel, they're they're going to say, you know, for instance, if you're preaching 
on one of the Ten Commandments. You know, you're going to preach the duty required. You might preach the threat or the promise annexed to that duty. You're going to talk about what's forbidden. But then you're going to acknowledge that none of us have kept that, that Christ has kept that for us. And then you're going to acknowledge that now he is renewing us to run the course of his commandments Mm -hmm. as we abide in him by the power of his spirit. So we're not setting aside the law. We're putting it in its proper place, both in justification and sanctification. In justification, it plays no role in our being accepted by God, except Christ keeps it for us. In sanctification, Christ is working in us a love for his commandments and a desire to more and more conform to them, Mm -hmm. even as we fail and have to go back and confess our sin to him and to go forward in holiness again. By the way, for all everybody listening, uh, you should go back um, a few minutes and just listen again to how Nick unpacked union with Christ is the threefold uh, way in which Nick unpacked that. If, if you're, I promise you it's it's very very helpful it's, it's if you're not familiar with it it's more important than you can imagine uh, so go back and on you knew with christ just as an aside nick what what should somebody read what's what are, what's a good resource for people yeah since you picked up on that threefold division or the three stages of union that i mentioned uh justin taylor i think had done a blog post years ago at the gospel coalition on big eva big eva there i go peeling big eva there we go Big Eva peeling a dick Gaffin. I mean, what are we going to do? Don't tell the cross-politic guys. Don't tell them. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Dick Gaffin, we, they like him, so we'll use that. Okay. Um, so he breaks down in there Richard Gaffin's threefold, you know, threefold union with Christ paradigm, and I think that's very helpful. Obviously, read everything by John Murray. Yeah. I mean, Murray's not right about everything, but the guy got union with Christ so well. So any of his articles, shorter essays on union with Christ are just, they're they're unsurpassed. And then Sinclair Ferguson. Mm. I mean, probably nobody today gets it as good as he and Richard Gaffin. So Sinclair Ferguson is a beast, uh, Mm -hmm. a true modern beast. Uh, Love him. So, okay. So this, this idea that um, in law and gospel, you, you, you're saying that the, uh, the law condemns, uh, you know, it calls, right? It, you know, obey, uh, but it condemns it. It the law is holy, just, and good. Does not contribute to our justification outside of Jesus keeping it for us, right? Like our keeping of the law plays no part in that, but it does play a part in our sanctification. And so, you know, you're saying, oh, well, the law is holy, just, and good. Um, the law is used by God to sanctify us. I mean, it's part of His Word, right? His Word, He sanctifies us through His Word. <clears throat> So I see a lot of people online lately uh, in particular, it seems to happen every so often. Um, you know, they start talking about monergism and, uh, and, and traditionally I would, but monergism is, is about, you know, regeneration, justification and all of that. Uh, but then there were, I just saw a thing where uh, I think it's on the Baptist review is a little page I go to. Um, and somebody, they were asking, Hey, are, are you monergistic or synergistic when it comes to sanctification? And I got to be honest, like, I, I don't remember reading anybody that talked about it that way in the Reformed tradition. Um, and I didn't bother doing it. I rarely engage uh, unless I'm joking. So, um, but clearly uh, we play a role in sanctification through the killing of, the, of, of sin and, you know, uh, striving to obey, recognizing that it's God working within us to 
willing to work for his good pleasure. Um, how would you answer that question? Uh, is is it is it safe to say like, well, no, sanctification is synergistic, or would you just avoid that phrase altogether and explain it differently? So I think you've already nailed it. Those are modern categorical catchphrases by which we try to explain is it God doing everything? Is he the only acting agent or do we participate with him? And so, so far as they go, it is helpful to say our justification is monergistic in the sense that God does what we can't do in Christ in order to justify us. He even gives us graciously the faith and repentance you know, in yeah. coming to Christ and gives us justifying faith as a gift, even though we have to exercise it personally. So even there, you know, we are exercising justifying mm -hmm. faith. We're just not actively bringing anything to contribute to it. We're receiving Christ and, and that justification. In sanctification, and this is where it gets difficult, I am an adherent of what uh, John Murray called definitive sanctification, that because of our union with Christ, when he died, the power of sin was definitively broken in redemptive history and, and in our lives so that when we're united to him in time, when we believe in him, we experience that definitive sanctification, that once for all radical breach. That sort of stands at the head of our doctrine of sanctification. And so in that sense, that would be a monergistic act of God. But when we talk about sanctification historically in the Protestant tradition, we're talking about progressive sanctification, right. that more and more ever increasing, maybe we have times of backsliding, but we're always going back to go forward in holiness and growth and grace. Um, you know, we appeal to a passage like uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I think, two, where he says, um, work out what God is working in. Yeah. Right. So. God works in, we work out. That's synergistic. Or what Paul says in Galatians uh, chapter 5, that it's faith working by love mm. that we live yeah. the Christian like, life. Uh, so, first Thessalonians, I think it's First Thessalonians 4, 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. <laughs> right. like, so sanctification is a part of, like, you're, you're actively a part of this like it's i've always said god clearly we god is the one who sanctifies we don't sanctify in that sense like our progressive development is god at work in us jesus prays sanctify them in truth your word is truth so we know the word has a role in that um but yeah we clearly i don't see there's any other way to read the scripture to but to see that we are there's a striving in that there's a, there's an acting and an, and an output of energy on our end in this process yeah, there was a phrase being bandied about back at the height of Tolian Chivijan, where I think he appealed to a neo-Lutheran uh, neo scholar Capone, Father Capone, I think that's how you say his last name, that justification is getting, or sanctification is getting used to your justification. No, it's definitively not. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Now, if you forget your justification and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your right standing. Yeah, you will slide into legalism in sure. your desire to try to live the Christian life. This is Paul's point in part in Galatians where he says, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Mm. So it was a legal problem in their quest for sanctification that muddied their justification. Yeah, yeah. But sanctification is not just getting used to your justification. And this is where I think many Lutherans following Melanchthon and then later Lutherans, 
not Luther per se, and the Reformed are going to differ, that the Reformed historically are going to view sanctification as a very distinct thing in which we do um, participate, again, in working out what God's working in. We have to put our sin to death. We have to take those warnings seriously. We have to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and run with endurance the race. Christ doesn't live the Christian life for me. He doesn't Mm. repent for me. He doesn't believe for me. He doesn't exercise faith working through love for me. He gives me the grace for all that, and he is the source of the power of it. But I have a role to play in that. And I don't know how to explain that other than to say that's clearly taught in Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's um, there's, a, there's a real need for uh, gospel-rich preaching that is con- connected to uh, a vigorous preaching of the law. And I, we see this in the, in the best preaching, right? Best of, the re- of Reformed preaching. And I think the healthiest preaching, there's always law and gospel. And so in that sense... Would you say that law and gospel are friends or are law and gospel enemies? Because a lot of people seem to present it as if law and gospel are enemies, that they're, that, that, they, that they, they, don't, they don't cooperate together. Yeah. So what I would say, I, I'm trying to evade your question just a little bit here or maybe nuance it yeah, a go little. Nuance away. Carefully. Paul makes clear in Romans 7 that the law is not the problem. My sin is the problem. Right, right. But he makes clear in chapter 8 that there's a weakness to law, that mm-hmm. law cannot do what Christ did in yeah. the gospel, right? What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Christ did. Also, I would say if anyone is trying to be accepted by God by law keeping, whether they are um, doing what the Pharisees did with the law in, in trying to merit, in however you want to define that, condine, congruous merit, strict merit, gracious merit, however, and Roman Catholics make those distinctions, that that, that if you're trying to merit God's favor by your law keeping, then it's a ministry of death and condemnation, Paul says, Mm. that it's a ministry of death. Peter says, it's a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers could bear. But if we understand its purpose in redemptive history, that it's there to drive us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ, and to restrain evil in society in general, and then to become a rule of life for believers, then we we want to absolutely say that law and gospel are friends, that they work in conjunction with one another, but they have distinct roles to yeah, play. Yeah. And that's where I think things get muddied is people are like, were you saying they're, they're, they work in conjunction? Are you saying that they're distinct? I'm saying both. Distinction doesn't mean absolute and total contradiction. Yeah, they're, no, they're not the same thing. They're very different. They have right. different purposes. But right. you don't get to the gospel but by law, right? You have to right. you have to be confronted with your sin. You, the law condemns you. It and you 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 ran through it real quick. Why don't maybe you could unpack the three uses of the law in the Reformed tradition? Because um, I love I, I, that that was so helpful to me um, when when I learned that. Uh, and th- this is different from the the three forms of the old covenant law, moral, civil, ceremonial. The three uses of the law. I mean, it just even to, to say that oh, there there are uses, divinely given uses to the law that God has given us. What are those three? Yeah. So we've already mentioned the tripartite division, the three-part division, moral, ceremonial, civil laws in the Mosaic legislation, in the Mosaic covenant, 
given at Sinai. But then theologians, and it's not unique to the Reformation, but Calvin is the one that sort of articulates it in most clear focus in the Institutes. They're going to talk about the three uses of the law, and they're going to say the first use is pedagogical, that it's there as a schoolmaster. That's the language Paul uses. The yeah. law was our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ, right? And if anybody went to parochial school, if you mess up, the, the nun comes by and she pops your hand real hard with the, the ruler. That's what the law does. It just keeps popping you. And, and it, it, it's meant to crash down on you and condemn you so that you see your need for Christ. That's the first use. For the unregenerate, it's got to be a schoolmaster, and then Calvin will talk about a restraining purpose in society. And this will be a word to those of your listeners who maybe say, you know, civil law doesn't do anything. It can't regulate morality. Well, it kind of can. I mean, there is a benefit. It can't change sinners' hearts. But it, it is given a restraining purpose sure. in society. And so while we're not looking for a theocracy in the here and now, there is a usefulness, right? And even natural law adherents are going to have to say, yeah, the last six commandments should be the function of a working society. So there should be a restraining influence. Husbands should be afraid of, you know, abandoning their wives right. because there will be consequences civilly. Yeah. Not that's so that's the restraining influence. And then the third use, which is best articulated in the Westminster Larger Catechism, I believe, question 97, it basically says that while a believer is not justified nor condemned by the law, the law continues to show us the need that we had for Christ keeping it for us, to make us grateful to him for what he's done for us, and to drive us forward in full endeavor after new obedience mm. to it. So it's holding out the rule of life. So pedagogical restraint rule of life yeah. are the three, the three uses. Yeah. Because it's, it shows you what's, I mean, I, 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 I've, I've taught our people this way. Um, it, it's, it's not exactly that because I don't get into the restraint thing. But when I try to clarify it for people, I, I've said, but well, the law shows you what's good, right? Um, what's right. And that's God's way. Um, and so it sort of, reverses this order a little bit um it shows us what's right it, it, it shows us uh, and this is grace that god would give us law is a grace he show he reveals himself and says this is this is what i want you to do this is this glorifies me this is best for you um and it also shows us what's wrong which is me my sin uh my disobedience and it shows us what's needed right which is a redeemer a savior um but the, the, it's always doing all three. It's always showing, even as a believer, it's, it shows me my sin, but I no longer despair because I have a savior. It's still mm -hmm. a rule of life. It's still a godly rule, um, but I'm not justified by it. I don't try to be justified by it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where I think sometimes people get like, well, but aren't, but, but then how do I try to obey if I'm not trying to, I mean, I, I, aren't I trying to measure up? I mean, aren't I trying to uh, to do as good as I can? And my answer to them is, is it depends on the purpose. Like, why are you trying? Are you trying to do that to earn God's love? You already have it. To earn your place, you already have it. Or are you trying to um, do what God has called you to do for his pleasure and for his glory? That, that's, that's, a, that's a different purpose, right? 
Yeah, it's it's really about the motivation, to your point. And this is where the Heidelberg threefold division of guilt, grace, and gratitude mm-hmm. is helpful. I don't think gratitude is the only motivation right. to obedience in the Christian life and a desire to walk in accord with the, the commandments of God. As I think Kevin DeYoung has really pointed out in the whole in our holiness, that there are many motivations, but gratitude is the big one, right? It's because of what Christ has already done for me. It's because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, because he died for me and Mm -hmm. lives for me. I want to live for him, right? In in view of God's mercies, present yourself, right? mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, Romans 12, 1, right. So, And that's the indicative imperative structure that's so important, Mm -hmm. as you know, in the Pauline letters and right the the facts of what god has done for us in christ and then flowing from them the the reiteration of those now new covenant commandments which include the moral commands of god and the 10 commandments worked out in different spheres great that's nice man so listen as we're as we're wrapping up uh, any any final thoughts or things that you think would be uh, helpful for our, our people to sort of wrap their their minds and their hearts around So I have never been one to sort of promote things I've preached on y'all's podcast or other ones, but I am right in the middle of a series in Exodus and I'm right in the middle of the 10 commandments and I'm not, I don't think I've done a tremendous job. I'm, I'm always kind of kicking myself after I preach because I wish I had done things better or differently, but, but you know, if any of your listeners want to listen to any of those, they can find those on the church website, which is church hyphen creek.org you got a church creek got a hyphen dash got a hyphen, dash hyphen. i don't know doing? what are you doing with the i hyphen? inherited it <laughs> i inherited it <laughs> i'm gonna um, i'm gonna get a new url that just says crazy presbyterians.org and i'm gonna redirect it so anybody that types that in it'll come to your church that's great and um i'd also recommend to your listeners to be reading john calhoun treaties on the law and gospel thomas boston mm. on the covenant of works and he has a volume on the covenant of grace the Erskine brothers. Hmm. I mean, these guys are super helpful as well as the Puritans on this stuff. It's Ralph they Erskine really deal with it. and who was his and Ebenezer. Ebenezer. That's, that's the one I should remember. That's a strong name. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we're going to link to all of this. So, um, yeah, man, for sure. Uh, th- thanks for coming on, Nick. If they want to catch you on social media and yell at you again, it's uh, Nick underscore Batsig at, on Twitter, right? Yes, and send all your hate mail to Joe and Jimmy. <laughs> yes, please. He got enough of it last time. So you, you <laughs> so I, well, okay, I won't, I'm not going to, I don't, because listen, I'm talking now. Nick's not talking. Some people, <laughs> it's funny how some of the loudest people are the most sensitive people. How is that? How does that work? It's like so sensitive. Um, and be sure to check out, uh, definitely check out uh, Nick's sermon series on the Ten Commandments, but also uh, go to feedingonchrist.com. Is it .com or .org? .com. Feedingonchrist.com. That's got all of the Batsig you can handle. In fact, you probably can't handle it all, but you want, you want to get some of that. Nick, man, we love you so much. Uh, really hope we can set up a, we got to set up a conference down there, man. Uh, we got to bring D&D down to uh, North Carolina. South Carolina. Uh, South Carolina. <sighs> I'm sorry. Charleston. Yeah. And Charleston. Matt, 
Matt Tyler, my buddy at uh, First Baptist Mount Pleasant down here, we were talking about getting you guys down. So we'd love yeah, to. Yeah, I got to hang out with him at the at the SBC. So uh, and we talked a little it's bit a about guy. it. So all right. We will do that. Nick, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, and for, for all of you listening, we really appreciate uh, your support. Uh, you know you can catch our episodes every Monday and Thursday. Uh, Get them on your your favorite podcast player. Uh, Subscribe, share that with a friend. And if you want to support the podcast, you can subscribe to Doctrine and Devotion All Access. Uh, With All Access, you get some commercial-free original content, a a podcast called Banter of Truth, and you get devotions five days a week. Right now, we're going through the Second London Confession with meditations and reflections. Uh, That's Monday through Friday. So uh, you can sign up. You can just write on your phone. You can scroll down to a link that'll say support this podcast. Click that link and you should be able to sign up there. Or you can go to doctrineanddevotion.com slash all access. Hit us up on social media. That's at Doc and Devo on Instagram and Twitter, or jump on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash doctrine and devotion. Thanks and God bless.